Welcome to Chet Talks, expert insights at the intersection of health and technology. Chet Talks is brought to you by the University of Rochester's Center for Health and Technology, an innovator in clinical research and care. Learn more at chettalks.org. Welcome everyone. My name is Ray Dorsey. I'm a neurologist at the University of Rochester and uh, delighted to be uh, welcoming you to our future Parkinson's uh, clinical trials discussion. And we're really delighted and really excited to have Ann Wojcicki, the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe as, a, uh, as our guest. Uh, Ann was a former competitive ice skater and a varsity hockey player at Yale before she began her professional career in healthcare investing. After just determining that wasn't quite the right fit for her, she considered medical school, but alas, instead in 2006, co-founded 23andMe. Since then, millions have spat into test tubes and mailed them to the Silicon Valley-based startup to learn about their genetics. In 2008, Time Magazine uh, recognized their test kit as the invention of the year, and the company's work has led to numerous uh, genetic insights. 23andMe's aspirations are not limited to genetic testing. Its mission is, quote, to help people access, understand, and benefit from their genome, and among the company's core uh, values is to think big. To that end, the company is looking to apply its wealth of genetic knowledge to transform drug, drug development and advance new therapies for many conditions, including Parkinson's. We are delighted and honored to welcome Ann Wojcicki as part of our UDAL investigator meeting on the future of Parkinson's clinical trials. Ann, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Ann, 23andMe is the largest direct consumer genetic testing company in the world. Why is direct consumer genetic testing so important? Well, as background, so one of the things I was really excited about in 2000 when I saw the human genome you know, develop and I saw that we had you know, the first sequence came out, um, I was super excited that this technology and this ability to get information was going to have a significant impact on healthcare. And one of the things that I saw over time from my investing world is that in certain areas, the medical world can be very slow to adopt. And genetic information looked like, um, or access to your genetic information was clearly not going to be rolling out with any kind of speed by the medical world. And I felt like I really wanted my genome. Like, it's super cool. Like I, I to this day, I am so fascinated that you have these four base pairs that come together to create all life. Like, it's so, it's so simple, and yet it's so spectacularly complex and so um, poorly understood. And so I just, I found it so fascinating. And I also felt like there's this code in each of us, like we're 99.5% the same, but then there's this tiny bit of variation that's all of the you know, variation in humanity. So I was super intrigued by this. And at the same time, I, I grew up, my father's a particle physicist and I always lived the life of big data. Like my dad would talk about, like we just were looking for really rare events and the only way you find rare events is you have huge data sets. And so I realized like if you wanted to figure out what the human genome meant, you needed to have tons of information and um, you need to get billions of people who are gonna come together. And I realized that the only way I think we are really gonna truly benefit from the human genome was making it directly accessible to people and being able to then collectively come together and say, we are going to collaboratively mine the value of the human genome. You don't have billions of customers yet. I think last year about 5 million people spat and set their uh, saliva to uh, 12 million. We got about 12 million now. So we, we have a ways to go to hit my first billion. <laughs> but notice I said my first billion. Um, and then, you know, that's it. There, there's, there, there's a lot of people on this planet. Uh, how are those consumers benefiting from uh, this knowledge that they're gaining? Well, I think one of the things... Like I, the thing that bothered me the most about healthcare is that I feel like, like when I was, when I was five years old, it was the first time I learned about genetics. And I remember my mom explaining it. And she's like, you have your genes, which essentially is like, it's, it almost gives you your boundaries. Like, this is what you're, this is what you were born with. But then there's this whole world of environment and the interaction between your genes and environment is this amazing opportunity to be the best you 
And I just wanted to know, well, like, well, like I already have my genes. I can't change my genes, but I can absolutely change my environment. And I, I was like super motivated by that. And I, at the same time, I felt like the healthcare world was really focused on treatments and not on prevention. And in some ways, the healthcare world looked to me to say, we don't believe you that you have the ability to change your environment. Whereas I feel like, I, I think I do. And so the, one of the main ways I think consumers can benefit from the human genome is by getting these insights into what their risk factors are and then being able to make changes to mitigate those risks. So for instance, in areas like macular degeneration, which is one of the leading causes of blindness, you know, a lot of people don't know that they have a risk factor and there's ways that you can detect it early. There's treatments now for it. So knowing early, you can show up before you're symptomatic. And I think that's even something that we talk about with Parkinson's. What are all the things that you can do to potentially mitigate the disease if you could identify it pre-symptomatic? And so I think there's a huge opportunity for people to say health is not a single point in time when you turn 55. It's a continuum. What you do every single day adds up. And it's a whole, it's a lifetime of opportunity of, of you know, thinking about how you want to live your life. And we systematically undervalue uh, prevention. Uh, for COVID, uh, people with diabetes, 75% of people hospitalized with COVID have diabetes, hypertension, or diabetes, all preventable diseases. In our book, Ending Parkinson's Weight Over My Shoulder, we strongly argue that we think Parkinson's is to a large extent man-made and preventable, and we'll come back to that uh, toward the end. What, what has the company learned from all uh, the 12 million uh, samples that you've uh, acquired to date, and what do you hope to learn from the next billion? I think that the number one thing that I spent probably the first decade trying to prove out was that the way we're doing research works. Like we have, it's crowdsourced and it's online. And a lot of like, those were really controversial topics. Like people really doubted the ability of a consumer to get access to this information on their own, meaning their genetic information. And then we ask our customers if they want to consent for research and over 80% of our customers opt in, like, which is amazing. And people never thought like, oh, do people really want to participate in research? And then we have, we ask them questions. And our customers are remarkably great at answering questions about their health. And it's one of those things I learned also from my Wall Street days is that I'd look at a clinical trial and, and you probably experience this as well. You do not probably agree with all the other neurologists out there. So like what you might diagnose one patient as is gonna be different than another doctor. So consistency is actually not, like is, is not a truth in, in having a medical phenotyping. So at least what 23andMe was doing is saying, I'm going to ask all my customers in a consistent way in a structured data format to be able to give me this information about themselves. And what we find is amazing things. Like if I ask my customers, um, are you a morning person or a night person? We were able to find a number of genetic associations in, this, in the genes that are known to be involved in circadian rhythm. And what's so amazing about that research is all we did is we said, are you a morning person or a night person? Like, and you know, we didn't define it. We didn't have any follow-up questions. Like we just threw it out there. Like, what is it? And, and it's, it's, it's such a great example of sometimes having a really large data set matters more than having the quote unquote perfect data. And I think that's one of the things that we, like what we were really trying to do with the research is show that you can actually make research a data problem. And so now when we have a question, we just run a query. Like it's one of the amazing things that we were able to do actually with COVID-19 is we put out a survey to our customers and over a million people took that survey. And 40, we have like 30, 40,000 people who said that they had um, um, COVID-19. Um, we have 4,000 that were hospitalized. And again, what's amazing with that is like, it cost us almost nothing to run that study. Like it was really about the time of my scientists and, and the prioritization of individuals. But what we've done is we've been able to do research at scale. 
And I think we've also given consumers a platform to participate. And one thing that I learned from customers and friends who've been sick or others who have it, there's nothing more um, disheartening than saying you're going to participate in research and then you find out that your sample is sitting in a, in a freezer and no one's doing anything. And so like, that's for me part of it. I was like, no, no, no. People generally want to do something. Like they want to participate. They're, they're eager. Like we're all in it together. Health is the ultimate experience for all humans. So like we're all in it together. Let's, let's move it all forward together. Crowdsourced online research at scale. Uh, one of the chief concerns with a 23andMe's approach or with approach to genetic data in general is privacy. Uh, how does 23andMe uh, protect privacy and are there any gaps? We have, we, we always said from the beginning that we, we can't have a business if we can't do everything reasonably possible to protect privacy. At the same time, we spent, we spent a, a year plus working with all these privacy experts. And at the same time, we had one of the leading privacy experts come and he's like, Anne, like I want, you know, I want to be able to like drop off cash at your door and I don't want an email address and this and that. And, and he's, he finally actually concluded, he's like, look, at, at, if people aren't willing to take on some kind of risk, um, like the reality is putting your credit card online, all your information, there's some risk, there's always a risk. And you can't, like no one can tell you this is 100%. But what I can say is that we're gonna do everything reasonably possible to protect our customers. So a number of things that we've taken. One, we have an incredibly um, um, sophisticated engineering team that thinks about privacy and data security on a daily basis. So we have a head of security. We, we always think about how that data is being used. Second, which I think frankly is the most important is we're transparent with our customers and we give them choice. And one thing that I learned also in privacy that frankly, I think the medical world should do a much better job on is we give people that choice. And for me, again, one of the things I learned with privacy is that privacy is, is does not mean they don't wanna ever have it used. Like they, they, privacy is by definition is about choice. I might want you to have my genetic information. I might want my family to have my genetic information, but I wanna know when my information is going to somewhere and I want the clear transparency that I opted in. And again, one thing I've learned with people who are sick, who have a condition or have a family member, those people wanna see action happening. So they're absolutely okay to say, I'm like, I'm putting my, my information online and I have consented for this research because they know they want it to be done with a greater good, but they want to have the respect of knowing how that information is being used and treated like a partner in research and not a human subject. Um, as we sit here today, uh, 23Me is a highly successful uh, company. However, seven years ago, uh, success was far from certain. In 2013, the FDA issued warning letters instructing 23andMe to stop selling some of its services without first gaining FDA approval. What did you learn from that experience? Um, I learned that politics are complicated. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those things that's really interesting where I, um, we do this, this, I do this talk at Stanford every year and people ask, you know, was it 23andMe arrogance or was it neglect that got us this warning letter? And 90% of people used to always say it was arrogance. Um, but the reality was actually incompetence. Like we really worked, we reached out quite a bit to, you know, understand the FDA and understand, um, you know, whether or not we need to go through the FDA process. We actually had a former commissioner who was, actively involved in working with us. And I think one thing I've learned um, in the medical world, and I knew this from the Wall Street days, that it's really hard to change healthcare from within. And that there were, like 23andMe being a direct-to-consumer company and doing things online aggravated a lot of people. And it was easy to poke at us. It was easy to poke at us and say, I don't know if I trust customers, I don't know if I can rely on your data. So it was, we were an easy target in that way. And at the same time, I think we were seen as disruptive. Um, so when we got the warning letter, it was, a, it was a real moment for me to realize I'm communicating with the FDA in the wrong way. 
Um, number two, ultimately they are actually in charge and they have the ability to come after you whether you like it or not. And three, that we had kind of started in this way where we said we're gonna be entirely outside of the system, but that this FDA warning letter was not necessarily a punishment, but it was an opportunity for us to work with the, all of the FDA um, you know, um, employees to say, we're gonna now prove to you that this can be direct to consumer and that our data quality is high. And so I used to joke to my team that other companies have to pay lobbyists and all this kind of money to you know, go and get the attention of regulators. Um, whereas in our case, they came to us. And so, <laughs> so it's, all, it's all how you, how, you, how you see it. And again, this to me was an opportunity for us to show that consumers are totally capable. And I think that that's amazing. Like people are so much more capable than the medical world ever tends to assume. And I think one thing that's disruptive, that is like, again, it's related to our study and everything happening now with COVID-19, is that the one-to-one -one relationship with a doctor is super important, but it's not essential for everything. And that you can't have scalable healthcare if you're always dependent on a one-to-one -one interaction. And like, frankly, like COVID-19 has blown open the doors to show like this ha absolutely has to start happening. So the, the warning letter, again, was a, a real pivot point for us, but it gave us the opportunity to um, use data to prove out that this can actually be a direct-to-consumer product and that um, we can reliably give information back to our customers. We're going to transition now to Parkinson's disease, but I just want to remind our listeners that they can ask uh, questions of uh, Anne. Just put the questions in, in the chat and we'll uh, get to them in a, just in, in a moment. Uh, so 23Me and you have made substantial investments in uh, Parkinson's disease research. Why? We had, we had this funny um, situation. So my ex-husband's mother-in-law has Parkinson's and I remember right around the time that we were starting the company, um, there were papers that came out about the LERC2 association and that LERC2 was associated with Parkinson's disease. And, you know, we're, we're Jewish. Um, and I said to people, I was like, well, you know, should we get tested? And I got all the very stereotypical replies like, well, you know, what would you change? It's so unlikely you have it. Um, like everyone, everyone was making it super difficult to find out and, and no one was encouraging. And I, like one, I tend to be um, excessively independent, but I, I was agitated. Like, why are you guys trying, like, why are you trying to prevent me from having information that like would protect, like I might have a lifestyle benefit from knowing this. And, um, and so again, I happened to have a genetics company and it was very convenient and um, so my scientists put the, put the LERC2 mutation on the chip and, and I remember, and I kind of forgot about it. And then there was one day where I was look, like sitting at the kitchen table, looking through the data. And I, I was, I just I was like, oh, I'm going to browse our raw data and look at it. And I saw, and it took me a moment because my mother-in-law had two copies of the LERC2 mutation, not one. And it took me a moment to say like, well, what mutation do we actually have here? And, um, and then I realized obviously like if, if she has two, then, then my husband at the time was gonna have at least one. And he wrote a whole blog post about it. And, um, you know, and it really, it had a big impact on our life. And it had an impact because um, I felt like I could actually do something. Like, I felt like now I know that there's a risk and I need to take some things more seriously than I had before. Like I need to really be vigilant with exercise and the diet, and I need to really focus on my health. And while you could argue any doctor would say like, yes, eat well, exercise, it's more meaningful when you know you have a risk factor. And we also happen to be in, a, in an opportunity to have means to support the research. And we became um, close with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And we were really able to establish a partnership to say, like, investing in LERC2 research is a really high priority. 
And we want to see whether we can have an impact here. And again, for me, having the convenience of a genetics company, I said, and I want to try to crowdsource this. And you look at it for, for people, you know, LERC2 mutation is really rare. And if, if we were ever going to have a drug that's targeted towards LERC2, those people are going to be really hard to find. And I would hate to see a promising drug slow down because you can't find the people. Again, it was like one of the things we wanted to change with, with 23andMe and the research process. So, um, you know, I felt like it was a really, like that moment in the kitchen table was really transformative because I realized like we have a risk. Everyone knows they have a risk for something. Everyone can look at their health history and, and being able to be more targeted and saying like, this is a really high priority for the family. And I'm super lucky. I mean, in some ways I'm lucky with the lurk mutation because there was Michael J. Fox Foundation and they were so competent and capable of saying like, let's give money. It was a, it was a great partnership to say, we're going to make this run. And um, I've been really happy in the entire, you know, neurology community and Parkinson's community has been great because it just, the, the physician world and the researchers um, really want to make a difference. And, and I, again, it's, it's been a great partnership. Uh, so for those who don't know, LARC2 is found in about 3% of individuals with Parkinson's as a whole. It's found in much higher proportions in certain populations, Ashkenazi Jews, North African Berbers, where it can be found up to 20 to 40% of uh, people. People who carry that mutation do not necessarily develop Parkinson's. Uh, it, the risk increases with age, which brings us to our research collaborations. So as part of the Udall Center, we've been working with 23andMe, Paul, Paul Cannon, and members of your team for many years. Can you tell us a little bit about the research collaboration that we're doing together and what motivated uh, 23me to participate? Well, I was like, for one, I look at our Parkinson's customers, like the lens that I always put on it is um, what is in the best interest of my customers? And how is it that I can do partnerships with as many different groups as possible to make sure that um, we're advancing science? Like, I feel like we are representative customers to the research world. And what was great with you is like the motivation you have of actually trying out things in a different way. And you can talk more about some of the specifics of it, but you know, the, the, the key points of this was being able to say, can we recruit from our database? And um, can we actually do this entirely virtually? And, and that's where we've been like successful at saying like, let's actually, now, um, like we can find these people who are incredibly hard to find and have virtual assessments in everyone and, you know, being able to minimize the need for people to be coming in and having that direct interaction. So I'd put back at you as well as like, what is it that, that appealed to you about actually partnering with us? And what do you think is most transformative? Well, you have 12 million uh, members, and so you have um, uh, the greatest population of LARC2 carriers of any organization, I think, out there. But most of those LARC2 carriers don't happen to live near a major research center. They don't happen to live near New York City, or they don't happen to live near Rochester, New York. And the idea, as you uh, indicated, is can we provide, can bring research opportunities to people on their terms, instead of always asking research participants to come see us on our terms. So over the last year, we've enrolled 277 uh, people who've done uh, direct consumer genetic testing with through 23andMe who all carry a large two mutation. Those 277 individuals come from 40 different states around the country. Uh, we had visits uh, with Dr. Bruce Schneider and our team uh, earlier this morning. Uh, we have visits almost uh, every day uh, of the every day of the year, uh, weekdays, we're not doing weekends yet. And it's allowing people who otherwise wouldn't be able to participate in research to do so and to follow people with and without Parkinson's disease uh, on their terms uh, over time. Mm -hmm. Which I think is, is you know, what, it, what excites me the most about this collaboration is I think it's a model for how a lot of research could be done in the future. And I think that the idea of people having to come into a center, um, often they have to travel far. Like again, I live next to Stanford, people travel far, it's expensive, it's a big time commitment. And the more that I think we can look at, you know, Parkinson's as well as other conditions and say, how is it that you can do research at scale? And frankly, like that's why this collaboration is so impressive because it is a population that's otherwise almost impossible to identify. And 
you know, I think it's a relatively, um, it's a significantly um, diminished um, time commitment for participants. It's easy. And I think that makes it really exciting for people is then they can actually start to, you know, they can be actively engaged. So we've seen people in their homes, we've seen people at their work, we've seen people in their parking lots, we've actually even seen people in their national parks. Um, mm -hmm. Many of them, uh, those 277 participants are tuning in right now. Anything that you wanna to say to them? I think one of the things, I mean, what's interesting about the Lurk2 population that um, again is like directly impacts my family is this opportunity for us to know early, you know, are there environmental factors that contribute to, you know, disease onset? And then can, are there ways for us to potentially impact it? So I think one of the things I'm particularly interested as part of this collaboration as well is, you know, the world of prevention. And I think that as people, people email me all the time and they say, oh, I, I have this lurk two mutation, like, what do I do? And the most exciting thing for people is like, wow, you, you know that now it's a huge gift because now you can actually potentially change your behaviors. And I think that's where I would love to start to generate some of that data and prevention data, as you know, as a scientist is really hard to do because those are really long studies. And frankly, like that's where the teams tend to usually be the most skeptical of like, can you actually do a 20 year prevention study? And that's where I said like, wow, I'm like, I'm around. Like I have, <laughs> I got time, what are you doing? Um, so <laughs> I'm all for it. But I, I think that's where there's, there's really interesting opportunities. And I'm, I'm super excited. The first year we gave money to Michael J. Fox, we gave them $5 million and they said, I don't know if we can deploy it all. Like it, Lurk2 is so new. And what's really exciting is that, you know, Denali has an incredibly exciting compound you know, that's, that's moving ahead. And there's a number of other pharmas, GSK has a program in this, like other, there's, there's all these groups that um, are actively working on LERC2. So it's an exciting pathway. And I think it gives a lot of hope for saying, um, you know, you have an opportunity to change what you can. And then for people who are developing the condition, you know, are there ways to engage really with researchers? for, you know, for thera therapeutic management. And I think that's also what is really exciting is this, this group is actively contributing to the therapeutic development world. Uh, so to our Valor PD participants, first of all, thank you. Uh, second, you heard from Anne that we we're gonna follow you for the next 20 years. And then yeah. third, we're, we're gonna uh, expand maybe from just collecting genetic and clinical data to maybe collecting data on environment, nutrition, and uh, activity. Mm -hmm. I think that again, I mean, we should, we can negotiate the deal now. Like, I think that's where it's, um, I'm personally really passionate about this. And Paul Cannon, who is on my team, who's also, who, who really leads all of these up and is much more in the details. Um, like to me, that's this huge opportunity we have is like, you can now collect wearable data. You can track your, your activities. 23andMe um, is working on this now, creating these dashboards so you can see your activity score. And I think it's, again, it's, it's going to be your, it's going to be a lifetime of all of this, you know, like your lifetime of movement and food and whatnot. So, so I'm super eager to see, can we, can we understand um, environmental components? And I know, again, I know it's like, it's noisy data, it's complicated, um, but I'm, I'm optimistic with the right hands of partners, you know, can we actually, um, you know, really try to better understand prevention? In addition to seeking a cure for Parkinson's disease, we should seek ways to prevent people from ever getting the disease uh, in the first place. Yeah, I mean, all of us as, as individuals, we'd much rather just stay healthy. <laughs> like I, I used to love going to the doctor when I was younger, when it was like kind of interesting and medicine and it was theoretical. <laughs> like now as I'm almost 50, I'm like, ah, oh, it's less fun. Um, so, I mean, we'd all just rather know how to prevent. And, and I think there's, there's so many people, like, again, it's, it's also inspiring. Like we need to work on treatments a hundred percent. And that's part of where, you know, 23andMe did do a big collaboration with GSK and we are actively working on a number of different areas. And it's super exciting to see how genetics can translate into therapeutics. And that is a good example with the LERP2. But, but I, again, to me, the two have to go hand in hand. You want to live as healthy as you can, as long as you can. And then you want to be, have effective treatments when you do actually have an issue.
Let's talk about uh, those treatments. Uh, many of our listeners may not be familiar with these LARC2 inhibitors that are in development. Can you talk a little bit about those, some of which are being developed uh, miles from where you are right now? Yeah, I, I, I'm not in the weeds on it, but Denali um, and the CEO, Ryan, who um, is, is tenacious, like he is so passionate about making this happen um, he's an incredible CEO. He is like a pit bull going after this disease. And um, I'm really impressed. Like Denali, they just did a big partnership with Biogenidec. Like I'm very, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm crossing my fingers also, because again, it is very um, focused on the LERC2 population. Um, at the same time, there's partnerships we have like GSK. We had, um, GSK has their own internal programs that they are running um, they, it was something that we were working on them with now, but now GSK is running at it alone. Um, but I'm super optimistic because you have a group like GSK and the, the power that they have is, um, you know, they have money and real resources to put behind this. And Hal Barron, who runs that team, is very dedicated to making something happen. So I'm optimistic about the energy and, you know, the effort, the brain power that is going into this. And again, I think it's something that will come with our, with our customers is helping them at the right times participate in these studies if they want to. And just as background, the LARC2 mutation appears to increase the activity of this protein kinase uh, called the LARC2 protein. And there are drugs being developed by Denali and others that inhibit the activity of this protein. It also turns out that there are environmental factors, including this chemical called trichloroethylene found in half a Superfund site throughout the country, including many in Silicon Valley that also may increase the activity of LARC2 protein. So these LARC2 inhibitors may be a benefit for people who carry a LARC2 mutation, but also might be a, a benefit for people who have Parkinson's for other reasons. Um, you mentioned your partnership with uh, GSK. Uh, do you wanna talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, um, again, one of the things I realized from the Wall Street days was that um, you know, drug discovery process is ripe with failure. And you um, get all these people, you know, who really care, who are so passionate, and and then you have a ninety percent failure rate, and it's an awful, it's a really tough um, world to be in. And so part of the reason for starting Twenty Three Me as well was to say, can you instead instead of starting with mouse data, can you start with human genetic data? And by having human genetic insights do you have a higher likelihood of success? And what we have found after you know, 14 years is that we have this incredible community that has participated, that's opted into research, that has given lots of um, information about themselves and we can make novel discoveries. And with those novel discoveries, we're able to translate that into um, you know, uh, therapeutic compounds um, that are going to target those genetic mutations. And we have our first program that started um, in partnership with GSK that is an immuno-oncology program in cancer. Um, and we have a number of programs behind it. So it's an incredibly productive collaboration. And again, I look at, um, you know, 23andMe is a, still a, rel I still think of it as a startup, um, but as a relatively small-ish company um, to be able to leverage all the resources of GlaxoSmithKline um, allows us to really take all this information and move it forward faster. So again, our lens is always like, if I was a customer and I had this disease, what would I want to do? And the two things I would want to do is I would want to know, does this impact my family and can they prevent it? And how do I get a treatment or cure as quickly as possible? And so those two elements are always in my mind. So does it affect my family? Is there a treatment or cure? And to that, our first question or com is a comment from Jesse Keefney, who says, I just wanted to thank you, Anne, for allowing me to access my genetic status for Parkinson's risk. When I found out that I carried the LARC2 G 2019S mutation through 23andMe in 2014, I've been participating in research ever since. I've had a really positive, empowering experience. My father and grandfather both had Parkinson's disease, and I felt that I should be able to share be able to find out what my genetic risk was. Thank you so much for never giving up. I love it. Thank you. I mean, it's exactly, it's, it's um, overwhelmingly, I find that people want the opportunity to participate and they want that transparency in themselves. So that's uh, part of what we are. 
Winter Evans, who's a member of our steering committee for our joint study, uh, says thank you with three exclamation points. How much of an individual's genome is included in the download, download, downloadable raw data available to 23andMe customers? And is it available with both kits or only Ancestry and Health? No, it should be, um, it's available on both kits. Um, it's not, we don't do a full sequencing. What we do is we just, we look at SNPs. So the single nucleotide polymorphisms. So the areas that are known to vary between humans and all humans are supposed are, you know, 99.5% the same. So we focus on that 0.5%. So there's definitely some rare mutations that will end up missing, but but we, we, what we've done is we figured out the sort of least expensive option for scale. And, and we do this thing called imputation where I can actually sequence. So for instance, in the, in the Jewish community, I can sequence a number of genomes from the Jewish population. And you can do almost a mathematical formula called imputation where I can almost piece together the missing parts of the DNA. And in part because we're all so similar, it's like a puzzle and you can start to piece all of that together. So we only look at that small component and then we do some mathematical modeling on the back end to get more statistical power. Um, but for you as the customer, what you can download is the raw data. And we have a number of people who, who do download the raw data. They do their own kind of analysis and especially on DNA relatives. Like people get very interested in building out their family tree and finding those connections. Marini has a follow-up. How do you choose what you report on to consumers? Oh, that's a great question. Um, we, we have um, a real debate in-house usually about this. You know, what is it that is going to have the best, the most important impact on our customers? Um, you know, what is it that customers want? Um, and also what is, what's true? And I should say like the last statement about like what's true, it's really important. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that report on um, variations that have more sketchy um, scientific underpinnings. So we will report on less than others that are out there, but we have really strict scientific standards. And I think there's like the one thing I have learned um, on the ancestry side, for instance, like somebody wrote in the other day and she says, I'm 99.9% .9 Jewish, but I'm 0.1% Japanese. And because of that, I decided to learn Japanese. And I like decided to spend my summer in Japan. And, and she's like, and then you guys had an update to your algorithm and I'm no longer 0.1% Japanese. <laughs> and, and like, what happened? And so the thing that I, I go to my team all the time, I say like, people, it's, it's so important. Like this is people's identity. It's their health. They make decisions on this. So it's better for us to be conservative and give less, but feel really like we're like, we stand with science on this and our scientific credibility. Like when I think about like the pillars of the company, it's privacy and it's scientific credibility. Like those two bring us consumer trust. Like everything that we do is dependent upon our customers trusting us. And I can't have trust without those two pillars. So it's super important for me. And so as we're thinking about things, we, I want to have an impact on health and I want to be able to give people, you know, information about themselves. That's going to be as broad as possible, impact as many people as possible. And that was things like our type two diabetes report and, um, you know, and or potentially as highly penetrant as possible. So on the societal front, Jacob Adams asked, what are you doing concretely to prevent ability to obtain personal genetic data from creating or expanding health disparities based on class or race? Well, that's a very complicated question. Um, I think a couple things, um, you know, genetic information right now is primarily um, gen genetic research is primarily done in European populations. And even our, the 23andMe customer database is, you know, 75%, maybe 72, it's going down, but it's roughly, let's say 75% European. So 
it's super important for us to have um, that credibility with the community and um, and and to again to to try and grow that more. So that said, 25% of 12 million is still one of the most, you know, one of the biggest non-European databases out there. And one of the realities, and you can talk about this as well, right? Like genetic information in the European population is frankly just much simpler. Like the African um, genome, there's more diversity in Africa than there is in the rest of the world. So part of the reason why we have some of these disparities in genetics research is in part because of the complex nature of you know, genetic variability in Africa versus European populations. That said, everyone right now is like really hungry to do more research on African populations. So we're trying to do a lot more in that. The, I think the whole world is trying to do a lot more in that. That said, I think there's a real trust issue from historical um, research programs and whatnot that's going on um, or that's happened. So we're trying to make sure again from that those pillars of like you know science and privacy making sure that we can show to our the community that we are um, um that we are a trustworthy partner on this and that they should participate in in 23me and the research programs that we have and as well as doing some other types of partnerships to make sure that all of this translation work is going to impact all communities um we're also really looking from all of our reports, when we have a report that's more Eurocentric, seeing what is it that we could do to make sure that it is, you know, that we can expand it beyond the Eurocentric nature of it. So we have an active program for the product of making sure how is it that we can expand into other populations and make sure that we are the leaders in sort of democratizing um, genetic research and, and access. Um, so there's always other questions in terms of just the access side of making sure on the socioeconomics that everyone has, has the ability. And I would say one of the main reasons why 23andMe has always fought to be a direct-to-consumer company is that I think that enables the broadest access for customers um, because insurance tends to often exclude um, large numbers of people and creates a lot of barriers. So it's been a high priority for us to be direct-to-consumer and make it as affordable as possible. So sorry, it was a complicated question, and there's a lot of elements of that. <laughs> On the consumer front, our friend Brian Frisk from the Michael J. Fox Foundation says, I'm curious how consumer awareness and understanding of genetics has changed in your view over the last 20 years. How has mm -hmm. that changed 23andMe approach, 23andMe's approach over time? Hi, Brian. Um, we... I would say like one, like my head of marketing, who is just so, she's so good. Um, she used to say internally, she's like, what we're doing is we're taking the weird and we're making it wonderful. And it's totally true. Like we took this thing, like people, when we used to say, oh, don't you want your genome? And people like, what? Like, why would I ever want my genome? Like people were um, so confused by it. And, um, you know, the number one thing people talked about was Gattaca. I mean, it's great. Like, I, no one has brought up Gattaca in the last five years, which is amazing. Um, but people really had kind of a sci-fi fantasy. Like, I remember I had one congressman come to me and he was like, I am worried about cyborgs. I, and I was like, what? <laughs> what? What are you worried about? Um, and I think in some ways, um, I'm not like... The, like it's been, people have seen the, like people see the benefits and people see the sense of identity. And so I think the main thing that's happened is we went from that weird to the wonderful where people kind of see our enthusiasm of like, your genome is so interesting. It's the digital manifestation of you. It's as beautiful and wonderful as all of you. Then it tells a story that sometimes you can't see. And then it unlocks this whole world that on the research side and the health side, like it can only get better. And so I think people now see, like we've proven out. And again, it's part of the, how 23andMe, we have one of our core values lead with science. Like you, you, can't, you can't market to someone and try to convince them it's no longer weird, it's wonderful. You prove it out. And you prove it out with people's experiences. You prove it out with data. You, like you walk the walk. And I think now you see like how much it has had an impact on people's lives. So that's, 
has been, it's, it's night and day. Like, like suddenly we are um, like accepted and there's like, um, there's like a ton of people who copy us. It's amazing. So. From weird to wonderful. Uh, yeah. Another question. What do you say uh, to people say that would say it would be unethical to tell people that they have a disease that we cannot cure? I think that to me is a, it's a totally a question of choice. I would say it's unethical for me to not be in the decision-making seat on that kind of question. I think it's absolutely unethical that, <laughs> don't get me started. It's absolutely unethical. <laughs> the medical system makes all these decisions for me. Like I'm in charge of me. It's me, like I wanna be in charge. And so like, how dare you take away my ability to be in charge of myself? So if I want that information, I absolutely have the right to get it. But at the same time, how dare the medical system tell me I have to have something? Like, if I don't want to have this information, I don't want it. So to me, it's all about choice. For some people, they function better knowing it. And then you have other people, like I have met people who are like, you couldn't pay me to take that test. I'm like, great, you should never take it. So it's, it, people have to know themselves and I think healthcare should be more and more about choice. And just the way I operate, I want information because I wanna be as healthy as I possibly can. So I thrive on this information. I thrive on thinking about, you know, if I'm high risk for something, like what am I doing? And am I proactive on that? Uh, Phyllis Chin has a genetics question for you. Um, uh -oh. Since all people, no, you got this one. Since all people share 99% or more of their DNA, what does it mean when I get a report of a second or third cousin with whom I share around 14% of my DNA? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I mean, what it is is that we're, we're all, we're, we're looking at these segments that come in, you know, when, you're, when your DNA, and I would encourage you to, um, you get your family in 23andMe. And you can start to see, we have some tools so you can see how your parents, um, you know, give the DNA to the children and then to the grandchildren, and you can see it's choppy. And so what, what you're seeing is these, these segments that people are inheriting is, um, you know, as a percentage that you got something that's an entire chunk that's in common. And that means like it hasn't been part of the recombination. It's a chunk that you have in common. So it's, it's, not, it's not the most precise of answers, but that is, um, you know, we have this inheritance by descent and you, you, you start to see these, uh, the, the chunks. So I would encourage you to, to almost look at like specifically that chunk that you have in common and, um, and it's going to be relevant to, you know, knowing that, that that piece was specifically inherited and it's part of that 99%. Have Brian waves back. Um, the, before we wrap up with Anne, uh, tomorrow, Friday at 2 Eastern, we continue our discussion on the future of Parkinson's clinical trials with Baku Patel, who is the director of division of digital health at the FDA. So if you want to know what the FDA will, uh, will if, when the FDA will be ready to accept digital endpoints as primary outcome measures in clinical trials, will join us tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern. So Anne. Yeah, I want to know the answer to that too. <laughs> we'll get you a link. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, so Parkinson's disease is the world's fastest growing brain disease, even faster growing than Alzheimer's disease. Today, 200 Americans were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and another 100 died from the condition. Uh, at the same time, the number of Americans with Parkinson's disease has increased 35%. NIH funding for uh, Parkinson's disease research adjusted for inflation has decreased. Um, the most effective medication for the condition, levodopa, is now over 50 years old. Chemicals linked to the disease, including certain pesticides and this chemical trifluethylene, are still found throughout the United States and in Silicon Valley. You have close ties to the disease. You've invested a lot of time and energy in it. What will, we, what will be needed to prevent and end the disease? I think um, what inspired me um, in the 90s was the HIV community. And for all of you who are out there, um, there's a great documentary to, to watch called How to Survive a Plague. And I, like, I, I was investing in the time. So I got to know a lot of these people through the lens of the investment, but then I just was in awe. 
Um, and these were people who didn't sit, sit around and kind of wait, like they were angry and they, they stormed the FDA. Not that you should all storm the FDA, um, but like they, they, they rose up, like it was true patient activism. And I think that, like, I think one of the ways that we're gonna, you know, make a change is frankly, all of you, like people who are activists and who come together and, you know, the, the, the crowds, like having, um, a, you know, a strong voice. And I think one of the things that 23andMe has been trying to do, and you guys should all like, feel free to write in and chat more about this. Like I'm trying to create a platform for people to be able to come together and use their data for good and, and make a difference. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, what happened with the HIV community and others, like you can solve a lot of problems with data. And I think that we're gonna, the more we can actually understand, I think the more that it makes the problem easier to have an impact. So I definitely encourage everybody to um, be activists and watch uh, that movie. Uh, so we're kindred spirits because the reason I wrote that book is because mm -hmm. of David Francis's book, uh, How to Survive yeah. a Plague. As oh, wow. Uh, so wow. Uh, so oh, wow. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't know that. I love we we used to bring um, some of the activists to 23andMe to speak, just as like, what did you guys do? And that passion, like that the, it was that passion and that that sense of accountability, like, no, 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 what did you actually do with my data? Like, what what's happening here? Like, how are we having progress? Like, don't just write a check, like, ma make a difference, get the progress. So I, I, it was kudos to that community. I learned a lot from them. So I'm glad to hear that that's, um, that inspired you too. Uh, so that community uh, responded to an unknown virus that was uniformly and rapidly fatal in the 1980s and there was no federal response. Uh, so you can take your parallels to the present time. And that community led by the late Larry Kramer adopted the motto of silence equals death. And they created an organization called ACT UP, silence equals death. And for the Parkinson's community, silence doesn't equal death, but silence equals needless suffering. And uh, when we uh, gather our voice, 1.1 million Americans that have Parkinson's disease, uh, it's the fastest growing brain disease in the world. And if we work with people like uh, Ann Wojcicki and 23andMe, we can change the course of this disease. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chet Talks. Subscribe to our podcast to learn more insights on health and technology, and check out our website at chettalks.org.